Welcome to the Shoreline Community Church Podcast, a community of love, acceptance, forgiveness, and belonging. For more information, be sure to check us out online at shorelinecc.com. As we walk today, we're in this series called Walk This Way, where we're talking about developing this, this gospel-shaped church and this gospel-shaped life. And as we continue, we're, today we're in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, and we find the Apostle Paul where he's instructing us as it relates to gender roles in the church. Gender is very important by God. It's a sign by God, and it's one of the big illustrations that he uses in explaining his relationship between us and him. And if you remember, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to Timothy, and he's, t- he's telling him, instructing him on how to address false teaching. False teaching is a big problem today. It was a big problem back then. Fake news has always been around. It's always around. Before social media, it was a big challenge. And, and here, Paul, he's addressing one of, one of the biggest divisions in the church and even the world today. And unfortunately, one of the biggest divisions has been between male and female, between man and woman and it's, it's so sad because it was never meant to be that way. Because even though it's taken many forms, you know, gender roles and, and definition throughout my lifetime, it's, I, I've seen it be continually under attack and, and continually one of the ways that the, I believe the enemy tries to, tries to divide us. But one of the good news about the gospel and with God, that as we've been looking at this, we've seen that he's been instructing him to how to address this false teaching but it's all for the purpose of reconciliation. Throughout Scripture, you see the admonition of how good and pleasant it is when we dwell together in unity, one with the Lord. And it made me think about Paul's words to the Galatians in chapter 3 that talks about this, because Paul writes in chapter 3 as it relates to this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for all are what? One. All are one. In Jesus Christ. And so Paul, now he's bringing this passage on reconciliation as it relates to gender roles because of the false teaching. And he's addressing this false doctrine that unfortunately has been brought into the church because of the culture and the false religions around them. So here's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. And Paul writing to Timothy, he starts off by addressing men. He says, I desire then that in every place that men should, What? Pray. Men should pray. Prayer is consistent and constant. And he says, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, uh, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And then he, and, and then he, he says something, and Hang with me here, okay? We're, we're, we're going to dive into it. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he says something in verse 12 that you may gasp at, but because we love the Word of God, because we value the Word of God, we're, we're, we're not going to skip this, right? We trust the Word of God. But in verse 12 it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this section of Scripture is probably one of the most hotly contested Scriptures within the body of Christ at large. I mean, this is the stuff that has caused church splits. This is the stuff that has caused people within the church just to fight and to argue. But one of the things that I want to underline for us today, that as it relates to this, we trust God's Word. 
It is true. It is accurate. The Bible stands alone. We don't need to worry about it. We don't need to back down from this. We need to look at what it says. We need to learn from this. And when, when we see things in Scripture that seem to be out of the blue and be like, well, that seems to be a contradiction to over here. We don't back away from it. Uh, we certainly don't allow ourselves to get anger, be angry from it. But we lean into it. Because, again, again the Apostle Paul, he affirms this, the authority of God's word in 2 Timothy 3, 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the servant of God, that's all of us, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We need to be equipped for every good work. This is the role of, of God's Word. So today, this could be a whole series in itself. So hang with me. We're, we're, we're going to dive into it. I'm not going to be able to say everything today, okay? Because uh, at some point, you're all going to get up and leave um, <laughs> because you want to go, go get on with your day. But we're going to walk through this today. And as we look at how we walk this way as it relates to gender reconciliation, uh, we're going to identify several key areas. And the first thing I want to talk about is how we interpret the Bible. And I'm going to outline just some very short keys, okay? People get doctorates in this kind of stuff. So very quickly, I'm going to dive in. Just some key practices and how we understand the Word of God. And then also, what, then what this passage is saying, but then how we apply it to our lives. Faith without works is dead. We're called to live out the Word of God. So we're going to look at how we interpret what this passage is saying and how we apply it to our lives. So Lord... We look to you. We thank you for the word of God. So, Lord, give us wisdom today. Give me wisdom. God, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, oh God. And, God, that you'd also soften our hearts to hear from your word today, to learn to trust you and to know you, that everything, your word, all your word is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, so that we would be equipped. We need to be equipped. We need to be equipped for your good work, so... Holy Spirit, have your way here today. And everyone said together, amen, amen, amen. I've, and actually, I've not been afraid of this message. I've been, I've been pretty excited about it. <laughs> this is something uh, I've just been reading in and diving in. And then the reason why I'm excited about it is because I think there's so much confusion about it. And, uh, and again, as we look at Scripture, that just reconciliation is so important. Unity is so important to me. I mean, I'm Canadian. We don't like to fight, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Unless we have, have skates and a hockey stick, we don't like to fight. So, um, and after that, we're still best friends. You know, some of my best friends were some of the people I had the biggest fights with on, on, on the, on the, uh, in the hockey arenas. So as we walk through today for unity, so how do we interpret the Bible? Well, one of the biggest things that we start off with is we always look to context, okay? That when we look at this, we need to recognize that this was written in a certain time, in a certain culture, in a, a different language from ours. You know, that was all different. Much like today, when you go to a foreign land or even different parts of the city, you will experience a different culture where the food may be different, the language may be different here in Seattle. And so it's, it's important that as we seek to understand, I mean, Stephanie even had to take my context as she was listening to me and understanding a Canadian. And I mean, Canadian Americans are very similar 
But context is important. Who was it written to? What language was used? And what, it, what was going on when, that, when that, was, that, that took place? And then within context, there's also there's this Latin word called sola scriptura. And what it means is the Bible alone. And it, it means that when we're reading the Bible, we study to understand the words that surround that passage. Um, and it's, it's a practice that's been used for 500 years. And basically it means that sola scriptura, it means that the, the best commentary for the Bible is the Bible itself. That when we look at the Bible, we don't cherry pick scriptures, right? Just like you would never just read one page of a medical book that talked about amputation and then go, well, the answer for healing for everything is just amputation. That would be ridiculous. But unfortunately, sometimes we look at scripture and we just cherry pick the things that we like or we take the things out that we don't like or we take out one thing that seems weird and we weaponize it to see that's why God is wrong. Have you ever experienced that on either side? I have people quote scriptures, well, doesn't the Bible say this and doesn't the Bible say that? We look at the Bible in its completeness. And when we want to understand it, the Bible interprets the Bible. So we're going to be talking, and, and this was actually the, the practice of Jesus, that when Jesus was tempted by Satan or when they, he was tried to be cornered by religious fanatics and they would quote this, the scripture to him, what would Jesus say? The Bible also says this. Doesn't the scripture also say this? Doesn't your law also say this? So the practice of Jesus and the practice of those who've gone before us is we recognize the Bible's consistent, the Bible's complete. And so we use the Bible to interpret itself. It's, it's one of the best ways to do that. And all of these things that we looked at, this, this falls under a theological word of, of interpretation called exegesis. This is what we're talking about, to exegete a scripture. This is the process where it involves observation, meaning what does the passage say? It involves interpretation where we, where we dive in to understand what does this passage mean. It's the correlation that we talked about with the sola scripture where it means how does the passage relate to the rest of the Bible. And then an important part of exegesis is how do we apply it to our lives? Because if we're not applying it, it doesn't mean anything, right? It's just we're just getting knowledge. It's, about, it's meant to change us and to transform us. And then in addition to that, there's commentaries. There are people that have gone before us. One of my favorite theologians passed away, uh, Gordon Fee, who I've studied so often. I just, just what he has invested in the body of Christ is just, uh, just amazing. But my, my, my Kindle is filled with commentaries. My library is filled with commentaries. Just men and women who have dove into it and they've devoted themselves to the word of the Lord. So with all of that in mind, and again, if you want to get a degree in that, I'll make you a recommendation to some wonderful seminaries. But with all of that in mind, we're, we're going to dive into this passage and so the first thing we're going to talk about is the context. So this passage that Paul's talking about, he's addressing, what's the context? Well, very quickly, it was written over, over 2,000 years ago, and it was, it was written to a new church plant in Ephesus, okay, brand new, okay? And as you've, if you've been following along with us, you know that religious life in Ephesus was dominated by the temple of Artemis, right, with Diana. This is the Greek goddess. Uh, it was a matriarchal system, meaning that it was female-dominated, very unique in, that, in, that, in the world at that time. Uh, it was also was highly sexualized. It was anti-marriage. But it was also, they had a fertility god where people would go and they would pray to be fertile. So you have those, those two things running against each other. And it was also, it was highly monetized. This, the city was making a lot of money from selling trinkets. And there were so many things happening in this area. 
And it's also important to note that this religion, the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, uh, it had a lot to offer and appeal to women particularly who felt marginalized and who felt rejected by the culture, especially if you were a single woman or if you were widowed. In that day, the culture abroad was you were put to the margins because your worth was, was in your husband. It was, it was in the kids that you had. It was found in those things. So if you didn't have any of those things, you were seen as worthless. So along comes this religion that values it and even puts it above men. It had a lot to offer. It had a lot of safety. It had a lot of protection to offer at that time. And so this is the context that Paul, he's instructing Timothy on how to address the church in Ephesus regarding the false teaching that has taken place. And so as we dive in, I think it's very interesting that this passage, before Paul talks to the women, who's the first group he addresses? Men right? He addresses men, and he says, men, in every place, men should pray. Pray. And he says, lifting holy hands without anger and without quarreling. So again, he's, Paul is getting to the point, so when he's addressing something, we know that this is something that has taken place. He's not saying, well, just in case you ever get are angry, or just, you know, hypothetically, if you're ever quarreling. No, there was anger going on, there was quarreling going on, And in this section, Paul begins by addressing the men who are worshiping, and he's saying, you're worshiping wrong. And it's a good note to us, if your worship is out of bounds, if your worship is out of place, if your worship is wrong, your life is going to be messed up. Psalms is very clear that whatever we worship, we become like. So Paul, he's first, he's calling the men out. He's saying, lift up all your hands. In other words, men, you need to engage in worship. You need to not sit back. You need to be, in, be, be, be forward in this. And when he says, lift up holy hands, this is a sign of dedicating your life to Christ. Often when new people come here where they've never been in church before, they're saying, Pastor Dwayne, why do you lift up your hands? And I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm lifting up my hands as a sign of worship. It's a sign of surrender. And that I've found, as Scripture does this, that it's so important that my body comes into alignment because as I lift my hands, there's something spiritual that takes place because I'm surrendering even my flesh because my flesh needs to die. The Bible talks a lot about how I need to decrease so that Jesus would increase, and the flesh is the biggest thing that gets in the way. So my hands are in the air. God, this, I am yours. This is also it's a sign of surrender. It's a sign of saying, God, I am yours. Fill me with your power. This is what he's saying, and it's, and it's a posture of prayer. And he says, holy hands. Holy hands, this is a, a, about purifying yourselves. Where in, in, it involves confession of sin. Confession of sin is a regular part of every believer, okay? How many have messed up since they've given their life to Christ? Okay? <laughs> right. So confession is normal and regular because we don't want to wait till we get way over here. We want to... Like this, right? As we get off, we, just, we, we keep coming back to Jesus, getting stronger, getting stronger, confessing one another. Because the first thing that we do when we approach God is we want to make things right because God is holy. When we experience the holy presence of God, it's like, God, oh, woe is me, a man of sin. Forgive me, strengthen me, purify me, fill me. And then he says, free from anger and controversy. So obviously there's an anger issue here that needs to be dealt with. The men are arguing and they're bringing controversy into the worship. Remember, this is, this is predominantly house churches, right? So these aren't huge gatherings on the most part. These are, these are uh, house gatherings that they're, that, that they're coming in. And he's saying that you need to let go of all that anger, let go of all that controversy, because worship means that we lay down our life and we surrender to God. 
See, true worship, it cleanses us. And in worship, this is where things are being dealt with. When you see me down here singing with my hands in the air, there's some times that I'm saying, yes, Lord, forgive me. God, strengthen me. Lord, make things right. If there's, if there's something that has made me angry, you know, Jesus talked about you know, being angry but not sitting. Help me. This is what worship is. It's, it's, it's aligning. And he's, again, he's addressing the false teaching because arguing and quarreling were especially commonplace in that day. And Paul is saying, this is not the way of the follower of Christ. This is not to enter our worship. That worship is everywhere. So as it relates, yes, we need to come, let us reason together. If we have disagreements, we do it respectfully and honoring. We're listening to each other. We're presenting it. But it's not this just fighting the fight and this quarreling. And this whole aspect of that, I think it's important to recognize that there's nothing new here. <laughs> Men have been addressed for their anger from the beginning of time. Have you ever heard of Cain and Abel? Right? One of the first early acts of worship Anger came in. So there's nothing new here. This goes all the way back. So then Paul, he moves on to women. And in this section, this is where we're going to spend most of our time. He talks about three main areas as it relates to women. He talks about how she dresses. He talks about how she learns and how she teaches. So how she dresses, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 9 to 10, he says, I want women to be modest in their appearance. And how she learns, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then how she teaches, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So let's just take this in the order that Paul takes it. First of all, how she addresses. Paul makes a key statement here, and he says the statement, not drawing attention to themselves. He says that they should be modest in their appearance, uh, they, that they should wear decent and appropriate clothing and not drawing attention. See, not drawing attention to ourselves, this is countercultural. I mean, there are industries set up to target you for clothing, for makeup. Um, you know, I've, I've, uh, I have wonderful women in my life. I've spent a lot of time in makeup and clothing stores. <laughs> and I go, where's the chair for a guy like me just to sit down and wait? Where do I, where do I go? <laughs> How many of you are like, yeah, I've been there, right? But, it's, it's, but it's, it's set up to bring attention to yourself. And back then, as well as today, culture placed a lot of attention on the individual, right? It's all about me. So much of our attention is focused on how I look. And image has become such a big part of our lives where it's all about having the right look, right? And it's, it's not even just men and women, but I remember back even like with talking to people who go into the business world, right? You got the power suit or you dress for success or it's a way of kind of setting yourself up, right? And, just, and even just like how you, you, you present today, right? I got, I got a shower for you all today. I brushed my teeth today. I shaved, not my beard, but I shaved around my beard for you today. There are things that we do to present ourselves to a certain level. And it's not saying that all those things are wrong, but in all of this, we need to recognize that the power that image has come to where image has become so important that so many people today have felt that if they don't measure up in the image that they're presenting, that they feel like they have no worth. And we're all aware of just the devastation that it has brought, especially to young girls, where they don't feel they've measured up. That Sadly, it's even brought them to the brink where they, they question, can I even go on? Can I even live like this? The amount of bullying over image for both boys and girls, men and women. It's become such a, a big part of who we are that we often judge. We, we say don't, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a movie by its trailer. But unfortunately, sadly, we often do that. We judge by the outwards. And in the worship of this culture, again, think in context. 
women were dominant and sex was used in the temple of Artemis in that false religion to dominate. One of the ways that women tried to assert their dominance was in the way that they dressed, bringing attention to themselves and positioning themselves higher than those around them. See, how you dress was also, also identified you with a powerful group where if you looked like them, if you acted like them, if you did all the stuff that they did with their hair, it was a way of identifying, it was a way of receiving acceptance and a way of receiving recognition. And in that culture as well, when you dressed in this way, immodestly bringing attention to yourself, it was also understood in that culture that you were presenting yourself, in other words, of saying, I'm available. I'm available for relationship in this. It was almost like a, like a married man that would take their wedding ring off, right? This ring never leaves my finger. <laughs> but in that culture, when you dress like that, it was a way of presenting, I'm, I'm available. I'm available. It was also it was a power move, asserting yourself, dressing powerfully to dominate. And again, think about the culture at large. See, the culture at large in that world, it minimized women, especially single women and, and women without children. So dressing in this way, it was a way of having power that you felt was taken away from you. And it felt good. It was a way of feeling good. It was also a way of earning income. This was something that was highly monetized, everything around this. So again, thinking about if you were marginalized as a woman, how do you make money? How are you going to provide for yourself? This answered that question. This provided an option. So in the middle of this context, Paul is saying a word to the women of that day as well as today. And he's saying, draw attention to God, not yourself. See, everything that we do, the clothes we wear, the words we say, every action of our life is meant to bring attention to God. And this, this is true for both men and women. Men are, men are just as distracting, right? Everything that we do is meant to bring attention to God. That's why God says that we're to be mirrors that reflect who God is. And so in order to do this, we need to echo the words of John the Baptist when he said he, talking of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's why in my life, if someone gives me a compliment, I'll often say, well, if it was good, it was God. If it was bad, it was just me. <laughs> it was just me messing up. And as followers of Christ, we are meant to do that. That's why you see the disciples, you know, that, that before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was always working with them. They kept trying to rise to their authority. They kept trying to rise to their power. You know, they had a stage mom saying, put one son on the right and one son on the left and do this. They kept trying to put themselves in the power. And Jesus said, it's not all about that. That needs to go away. They kept trying to say, Jesus, when are you going to take care of Caesar? When are you going to defeat Caesar? And he's like, you need to take care of yourself. You need to die to yourself. This is what this is addressing. But again, in all of this, there's nothing new here. This is echoed through Scripture. We see this echoed from the beginning to the end that we're not to puff ourselves up, but we're to reflect Jesus in all that we do. And if there's anything in this culture that distracts people in the way that I walk, the things that I do, I need to get rid of it. That's why during COVID, there were decisions that I made that some people didn't like, but I'm like, I'm a missionary. And unless it contradicts Scripture, I want to go there. You know, you all think I'm a coffee addict. I love coffee, but I want to be where people are. I love the transit. I love the bus, but 
I want to be where people are because I'm having conversations with people that would never come here. And it, it lights me up. But I need to decrease. I need to minimize. I need to get out of the way. It's not my fame. It's the fame of Jesus. So nothing new there. Echo through scripture. Then Paul talks about how she learns. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 1 Timothy 2.11. First of all, I want to pull out Paul. He's affirming women to learn. Because again, in the culture of the day, and even in parts of the world today, women are not permitted to learn. They're not saying you don't need to learn. You don't, this is not for you. And so he starts off that, first of all, he's asserting that women learn. See, through the worship of Artemis, it was female dominant, and the culture, but the culture at large was not affirming that. But he's encouraging that women need to learn, that they're not the second-class citizens. He's, he's saying women learn, and, he's, and it's echoing the words of Jesus that we talked about with Martha. In Luke 10, Jesus told Martha, who was busy in the kitchen doing all these things, she was upset with Mary, who was in there at, with all the other disciples, right next to Jesus learning, and Martha was upset. Mary, you need to get in the kitchen and help me in here. Jesus was saying, no, Mary's chosen the better thing. You need to be with me. You need to be with me. You need to be learning from me. Jesus affirmed this. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, study to show yourselves approved. That's men and women. We need to study. We need to be engaged for that. But Paul is saying, how do we learn? We learn quietly and submissively. Okay? Now, this is something I've been told my entire educational life. Dwayne, stop talking. (laughs) Dwayne, sit down. Dwayne, Now's not a time for lunch, okay? (laughs) Right? I've been told to be quiet. I've been told to be submissive because this is how we learn. If you've got questions, we'll answer questions later. There's all those things taking place. But isn't that how we always learn? I mean, in every class. I mean, you know, my bachelor's is is in education. I went to seminary after that for a graduate degree, but my, my, uh, my bachelor's was in, ed- was in education. And in that, one of the things I talk about is education doesn't take place until you create an environment for education. All the educators, are you like, amen to that, Pastor Duane, right? You can't teach somebody until you can create an environment where they can learn. Where they're at home, right, yelling back and forth at your kids, no one's learning anything, except this does not work, and it's, I'm losing my voice here. Quietly. Submissively. This is the role of a disciple, right? The disciples around Jesus, they were like looking up. Okay, just tell us what's happening. When Jesus opened his mouth, it was in those settings. This is how we all learn because discipleship is all about this. So again, learning quietly and submissively, we need to not read this as like a pointing down to women. This is, this is how we learn. But he's addressing something that was taking place because in this context, in this culture, that this was out of proportion, and there was a group stepping out that especially in here, but this is true for all of us. Again, nothing new here. This is how we need to learn. But now, we come to something new. (laughs) We come to something new that you're like, Paul, why did you say this, Paul? Okay? It's something new, and it's something that's caused so much division, so much anger and splits. And Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, chapter 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. She is to remain quiet. I didn't hear a whole lot of hallelujahs on that, did I? <laughs> right? Because when you read this, you're like, Paul, what are you saying? Are you saying that women should just sit down and be quiet and just, you know, go over there? You know, it's, this is not, but again, 
Back to 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul said this too. All scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So let's trust the word of God. Let's take him at his word. Let's dive in. And I want us to go back to one of the things that I talked about with context and with the sola scripture, meaning that the Bible is the best commentary for itself, meaning scripture interprets scripture. So before we dive into this, what does the rest of the Bible have to say about women? Have you read the rest of the Bible? Because when you go and you dive into the Bible, going all the way back into creation, in Genesis, the very first chapter, we see that both male and female were created equal, both made in the image of God. In creation, we also see that God made woman as, the, and there's a word there in Genesis 2.18 that means helper. And the English word for helper, it doesn't really fully express what God is talking about. Because the word that's used here is the Hebrew word azer, which it occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. And in, in, in two cases, it refers to the first woman, Eve, which is Genesis 2 that I just references. Three times it refers to the powerful nations that Israel called upon when besieged that they need help because they're under attack. But the rest of them all refer to God. They all refer to God. See, sometimes we can think that when it talks about a helper, that's subordinate. When it talks about God being our helper, is God subordinate to us? No. The answer is no. <laughs> he's not subordinate. He's not subordinate to creation. He's not subordinate to anything. He's, he's not someone come, that, that's, that's coming along saying, Dwayne, how can I help you today? No, that's not what it is. This is the almighty God that's just saying, Dwayne, you're in trouble. I'm, I'm here to help you. I'm here to rule. I'm here to reign. This is a mighty God that's coming in. This is, this is what that word means. There is no inferiority that's attached to this, this, this word in any way. And in his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, the theologian Philip Payne, he puts it this way. He said that the noun that's used here, this helper word throughout the Old Testament, it doesn't suggest helper as in servant, but help as in savior, rescuer, protector, as in God is our help. He says in no other occurrence in the Old Testament does this refer to an inferior, but always to a superior or an equal. So help expresses that the woman is a help, is a strength who rescues or saves a man. So I'm not saying that in this, this means that the woman, the woman is not God, right? That's what was getting off track with the temple of Artemis. But that this is an equal helper that comes to our aid, that when, Jesus, that when God said it is not good for man to be alone, it means that we come together, we both express who God is, we both work together. And I can tell you that on more than one occasion, Stephanie has come to my aid and helped me and pulled me out of a deep, dark pit. I can tell you on more than one occasion, my mom came to me. My sisters have come to me, many of you. See, this is not a subordinate thing. This is not a weaker than thing. This is a strong and a strength. We are man and woman, husband and wife, made different. We have different skills and abilities that are obvious to all of you. <laughs> there's some things she does better. There's some things that I do better, but we're equal. Because even when the Bible talks about marriage, another sermon, it talks about how we mutually submit to one another. That's what marriage is. Marriage isn't like, no, I got a Stephanie to serve me my whole life. <laughs> right? That's, that, that, that's called counseling. Um, but no, we are equal. And that when we finally got in rhythm recognizing, you know what, there's things you do better, things you do better, things you struggle at, things I struggle at, and we learn how to work together we're still working on it today, but there are about 10 years in there of, right? 
When we figure that out, when we both humbled ourselves, when we mutually submitted, our marriage went to a whole new level, and it's helped us to sustain some very difficult things. Because even when we're both feeling down, we're like, no, we got each other. We're here. We, 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 we can do it. You ready? Let's go. You know, this is what we're talking about. And so using Scripture as our guide and how we view women, it's also important to know that that's how God looks at women, but even in how women are portrayed, it's important to note that throughout the New Testament, women were used as leaders. So when, so when we see this verse, when we look at the rest of the New Testament, we see that women were used as leaders, and even with the Apostle Paul, the one who's saying this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church in Ephesus, we know that one in, the, in, in all of his letters, that one out of every three individuals that Paul greets in his letters are women. In the early church, women are singled out as apostles, and these scripture references are going to come up for you, okay? So, and I can spend a lot of time there, but... Um, we, we, need, we need to move through, through all of this. But in the early church, women were singled out as apostles. They were singled out as prophets. They were singled out as evangelists. They were singled out as patrons. They were singled out as teachers. What do teachers do? Teach. Teacher got to teach. They were singled out as deacons. They were singled out as prayer leaders. They were singled out as overseers of house churches. And they were singled out as prayer warriors. All right? I could stop right there. But even as we, as we keep going, it was a woman, Mary Magdalene, who was the first to see the risen Lord. And it was Mary who received the task of proclaiming Jesus' resurrection to the other disciples, specifically men. She was the first person that Jesus sent with the message of hope. You know, and some, some theologians have said that this, this makes Mary the first apostle or, or, or the sent one. And I focus on that because when you think about the biggest message of the world, he's alive, he's alive, he's alive, and you're in a context where people didn't believe women, God chose a woman to do that. Lydia was a businesswoman, an early church leader, who responded to the message of Christ and offered hospitality to Paul and Silas, and the believers later even gathered at her home. Phoebe was a deacon in the early church, Romans 16.1. And many scholars believe that one of Phoebe's role was to take Paul's letter to the church in Rome where she would have, have read it to the other believers and even answering questions they may have had. Priscilla was a business owner in Corinth and also a great teacher. And then back up further to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we see that Deborah was a judge and a prophet. Miriam was a leader in the exodus of the children of Israel from slavery. Huldah was a prophetess who had a leading role in the restoration of the kingdom of God. Esther was a queen who risked her life to save the Jewish people, and a whole book in the Bible is devoted to her story. And in, in other letters, Paul even referred to men and women being equal and dependent on each other. Look what it says here in 1 Corinthians eleven eleven. It says, but among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first, the, the, he said, for although the first woman came from man, every other man was born from what? A woman. And everything comes from God. This, this is Paul, okay? So again, taking all of this into account. And even our own Assembly of God uh, denomination bylaws, Shoreline Community Church, we're, we're an Assembly of God church. It, it, it affirms and aligns with this scriptural view of women and affirms their role in leadership. So here's, this is from our bylaws. It says, the scriptures plainly teach that divinely called and qualified women may also serve the church in the ministry of the word. 
women who meet the qualifications for ministerial credentials are eligible for whatever grade of credentials their qualifications warrant and have the right to administer the ordinances of the church and are eligible to serve in all levels of church ministry and or district general council leadership. That's the bylaws, Article 7, Section 2, Line L. (laughs) Why am I sharing all this with you? You may be like, well, yeah, I'm there. I'm sharing this to give you confidence in the Word of God. Say it is true. I mean, even here at Shoreline Community Church, we have women who are pastors, we have men who are pastors. So, with all of this, even Paul's words, what what did Paul mean when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man? Rather, she is to remain quiet. Right? This doesn't make sense, does it? It's like Paul, what'd you say? Well, let's let's look at the word that is used because words are very important. And when we don't understand or we read something that doesn't make sense, we dive deep into the words that are used and we try to understand what they mean. And we do this in everyday conversations, right? Have you ever been surprised by somebody and you go back and say, what did you mean when you said this? Now, an immature, angry person would say, I heard what you said. I'm going to tweet it. I'm going to project it. It's going to be out there. No. We have problems with one another. We go to this, the Matthew principle, right? Okay. What did you mean when you said you don't like hockey? All right? What did you mean, or, I mean, I'm, I'm putting some humor in here, but we do this, right? What did you mean when you said whatever it is? Well, when you look at the word used to exercise authority, it's the Greek word authentine, which means, it, and, it, it only, and that, that word for exercise authority, it's important to note that this is the only time this word occurs in Scripture, so when, when you come across a word, there's, there's a few of those, when, but when that word is only used one time, we need to pay attention to it. So the Greek lexicon, it defines this word to mean control in a domineering way. So with this in, in line, we would read 1 Timothy 2.12 as, I do not allow women to dominate or to control men. See, to control in a, dominant, in a domineering manner is off, and it's often expressed idiomatically, for example, that, that again, in that culture, in that language, in that context, what's happened, this would come across as, I don't, I don't allow women to shout orders at or to act like a chief towards or to bark at, right? And men shouldn't do this either. But obviously, in this, in this context, this was taking place, Right? So he's addressing, right? There's, there's times with, with my kids, I address everything for my, for my kids, but there's, there's sometimes I'm like, okay, you, listen. <laughs> right? Here's some things that are taking place. So clearly, with all this evidence, with all the things going around, we're not talking about women being able to speak. We're talking about how they speak. We're talking about their motive for speaking. And we're talking about when they speak. These are good communication skills for everybody, right? We're talking about how they speak. They're in the church in Ephesus. We're talking about their motive had gotten off, and we're talking about their timing. So it's clear from this example that women, they were, speak, that they were, they were speaking up in these gatherings. It would be like right now if you started just kind of speaking up and shouting and motive and arguing, and, and we can get together for coffee and lunch and different things or whatever and have conversations later about it. But in that teaching time, you're saying, no, your, your timing's off, your motive is off, and you're barking it out, you're shouting. These are house churches, right? You, you can offset that group like that. It's clear from this example that this is what, to me, this is what Paul was talking about. 
that women in this context were trying to domineer, they were trying to dominate, and they were trying to take charge in the moment. Because again, think about the culture that they were in, right? This is, this is what was happening in the false religion around them. Now, for me as a pastor, I'm thinking about, can you imagine pastoring this? The men are angry and they got sin to confess. <laughs> They're not engaging in worship. And the women are shouting at me. They're barking at me. <laughs> Paul, can you assign me to a small little village somewhere? Because he's saying, look, men are angry. They have sin to deal with. Women are disrupting public worship. But in all of this, this is wrong for both men and women. This is wrong for both men and women, but he's addressing it in this context. See, Paul, he's not saying that, that a woman can never, ever teach. I mean, he's, he's used women prolifically throughout his ministry. He's talking about how it's happening. He's talking about, again, the whole purpose of this book is the false teaching that's taking place. He's trying to reconcile. And so he's saying the, the culture from the outside has influenced you, and it is destroying the work of God that is taking place. See, Paul, he's establishing how we are to worship, that we're to worship together. We need to learn from each other. We need to learn from each other. We need to dive in. That's why Paul said to the the Corinthians, he said, when we worship together, he said, it's so important that everything be done decently and in order. Every teacher would agree with that. Pastors, teachers, educators, they spend a lot of time. If they have an hour class, teachers spend so much time with their lessons plans. They go in, they set up the room for it. They get everything in place so that when it comes together, the students can learn. And in a like way, this is what Paul is doing. See, this is how we walk as a body of Christ. Loving each other. Respecting each other. Trusting one another. Every person doing their part, encouraged and equipped, as we said earlier, with all the gifts that God has given them so that whether they're male or female, that these things are flourishing. That's why we have men and women on staff. That's why we have men and women preach. That's why we have men and women as leaders. Not because we're going against these words, but because we are aligning with these words in a way that respects and honors. Because see, when the body of Christ operates in this way, there's nothing like it. When you have a group of people coming together in unity, serving the Lord, when there's tough things that take out, we just take time, we dive into it, we pray about it, we walk through, and we respectfully, not barking, not domineering, where men aren't doing that, women aren't doing that, but we have this going on. Do you know how rare that is in our culture today, where everything's about tribalism? If you believe one of these things, you believe all of these things. And with men and women, it's everything that has taken place. See, historically, the church has led the way in overcoming these injustices. Whatever it is, with women's rights, with racial inequality, we've led the way, and we need to continue to lead the way, not by barking orders, not by rising up, not by pulling a sword like Peter did and just corrected him, but just living it out. See, our world is, is so deafened by people saying one thing and just putting it out there and just tweeting it, posting it. But when you come across somebody who's authentically living for Jesus, that I'm not, I'm not in a hurry, I'm not stressed out by that, 
you can call me names, and I'm like, well, Jesus said to expect it. And you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit in that moment. I mean, how many times did Jesus come in and all this was happening, and he said one sentence, and it broke a bondage. This is who we're called to be. This is what Jesus was referencing to in the, in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that we're to be this light to the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. Your life will shine. Use words. Use God's words. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's, we can trust it. We can dive into it. Now, Lord, as we just spend some time responding to it, Lord, speak to us. My goal today wasn't just to give a lecture. <laughs> My goal today is to say, your word is true. It instructs us. It teaches us. God, help us not to fall into the trap of being divided. But unify us by your word. It's a light. It's a lamp. It directs us. Fill us with your spirit. May we come alive as the body of Christ, filled with your power, filled with the Holy Spirit, like mirrors reflecting you, not us. Reflecting you, we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to take, us, take some time just, again, response is so important. And, and I even encourage you just to even just get up and take, take a few steps somewhere. <laughs> if you're able to take, take a few steps somewhere. And I'm going to invite the the prayer team to come forward. But here's a couple of reflection questions. And um, these are questions for both male and female. I know Paul was addressing it, but you're not the church in Ephesus. (laughs) But I want you to ask yourself, is there any anger in your life that needs to be addressed? Anger looks a lot of different ways. Anger is sometimes demonstrative, and sometimes anger can be self-hate. Anger can be just inside, and then all of a sudden, kaboom. You know, I've been reading this book on building resiliency, you know? And it talks about a lot of times when we feel anger, when it's there, it's often a reflection of how depleted we are. We're angry because we're empty. When we're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, when we're filled with all these things, and man, we've been through a tough two, three years. We've been through a tough lifetime. But everything got accelerated. COVID just accelerated everything. A lot of stuff has happened. I'd like to invite you to just ask yourself, just you and the Holy Spirit, is there any anger in me? Anything that needs to be addressed? When I lift holy hands, God, let all anger be gone. And the follow-up to that is if you're saying, yeah, there's anger, and yeah, I'm empty, how am I going to replenish it? How am I going to deal with it? One of the ways you deal with it, talk to these people and pray with them. Trusted people. Talk to someone you trust and you love and you know they're there. Walk to somebody today. Say, boy, can you help me? You may be afraid to confess anger. How many have been angry in their life? I have. This is not hypothetical. I've been angry in my life. I got a little angry this past week. (laughs) Right? It's just... There's times Jesus got angry, but he didn't sin. We need to deal with it. We need to deal with this. How are you going to replenish? And then the second part, you know, is there anything, ask yourself, is there anything in my life that's drawn attention to myself instead of Jesus? How I dress, how I talk, 
the actions or the omissions of my life. You know, is, is it, that's what Paul was addressing with the whole modesty thing. Is it, you're pointing to yourself. We need to point to God. This, this is a male and female thing. And then honestly, you know, how am I treating the opposite sex? That goes both ways. And a lot of times this comes from hurt. This comes from anger. That I had somebody of the opposite sex treat me in a certain way, and I'm, I'm angry about it. I, I don't trust any woman. I don't trust any man. There's a lot of trigger words. I've had people confess to me, you know, Father's Day is one of the toughest days of the year because my dad treated me this way. God's our Heavenly Father. How, how do we reconcile that? It's hard work, but it's, it's a work that the Lord wants to do in our lives. And I think it's, it's especially tough because a lot of times we're hurt by people that we thought loved us the most. Bring it to Jesus. Go to prayer. We have communion every week where it's just, you open it up, it's the bread. It's a reminder, Jesus died. He suffered for you. And he shed his blood, that healing, to bring healing. This is not rhetorical. This is not theoretical. This is real. Father, we give you thanks. You are a good, good father who loves us, who watches over us, who teaches us, who strengthens us. And the gift of the Holy Spirit that reminds us when we forget and then instructs us in the things we don't understand. God, I pray that we would be men and women filled with the power of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, surrender to Jesus Christ, your son. Do your work in us. God, I'm praying for healing. Lord, you said... You said that your true disciples know the truth and the truth sets them free. So Lord, help us, God, to be filled with your truth, all the truth, the complete truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth of God. As we do that, we are set free. We're no longer held captive to the yoke of slavery, the sin that binds us, that destroys us. But God, let your truth resonate. Let it come alive. May we speak it with grace, front load it with grace, but alive in the truth of God, I pray. Lord, I pray for all my friends today, all those that are here. Lord, as they're surrendering their anger, God, may you fill them with your power of your spirit. Lord, may you give them safe places. Lord, others, other disciples, to walk with them, to help them, to encourage them, to hold them up when they're beat down by it that we would walk together in you, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen, amen. Isn't the Lord good? Isn't his word good and true? I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the more you dive into it, the more, I mean, even like things that seem difficult and have lined. Here's been my experience. When there's things that don't make sense, it's caused me to dive deeper and deeper, and I'm going, wow, 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 wow. Dive deep. Dive deep. It is living. It is active in our lives. Get, get in a group and say, what's up with this? And then dive into it. Dive into it. Talk about it. Pray over it. You know, bring in somebody. Um, you, you know, if you, if, if you want someone to come in and speak to something, boy, you know, I can do that. Dr. Kim can do that. My Stephanie. We have, we have pastors that would love to come in. And, and there's people that I go to. I'm like, well, what's with this? <laughs> and they instruct me in all these things. This is the body of Christ living active. Let it be done. Amen. Amen. Well, as you leave today, this is our benediction. Let's say this together. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Now go and live for Jesus. Love you all very much. God bless.